I want us to think this morning about the value of church. You know, the value of church has never been more profound than after a year of COVID and after the beginning of an explosion of attacks against Christianity by a, uh, uh, in a post-Christian world. By the way, I had not read it until yesterday. If you have not read it, you may enjoy looking up the letter that uh, Dr. James Dobson wrote to President Biden. And, uh, you know, presidents over the years have had counselors. Dr. James Dobson has been a counselor to five presidents up through uh, President Trump and uh, and has been called upon by those presidents for counsel regarding family matters. Uh, Dr. James Dobson is uh, a household name in the Christian community in America. He holds 17 honorary doctorates from institutions of higher learning because of the work that he has done as a Christian, as a um, leader of one of the largest Christian radio organizations, as one who's written profusely about the family, written I don't know how many books uh, on the family and family life. And because of his of his stature intellectually and biblically in his understanding of truth and the family, uh, he sat down and he wrote a letter. And I was reading it for the first time uh, yesterday. If you haven't read the letter yet, you may want to uh, find it online and read it. Uh, He is not given to hyperbole. Hyperbole. He's not. Uh, he's he's a man who does not use words uh, lightly. And what he wrote to President Biden is um, well worth every Christian reading and, and giving consideration to. The value of the church has never been more profound than it is in America today. Not from the perspective of the culture or even the political elites, or media elites, or entertainment elites, or sports elites, or any of the elites of culture and society, but in the purpose of God, and in the lives of people who understand what is essential in life, and what is important in life, in light of eternity. The church has never been more needed. In a world of plastic, we need real. In a world of shallow, we need deep. In a world of selfishness, we need compassion. In a world of phony, we need trustworthy. And in a world of loneliness, we need relationships. And I would say that The church is a rich reality in my life and has been for my entire adult life, reaching back towards my childhood. The church has always been a part of the stability that made me the person that I am. The church has always played a major role in my connection to God. The church has always been valuable to me. 
as an individual. Long before I was ever in the ministry or a pastor of a church, the life of the church was critically important to my life. It held great value. My question this morning is, what is the value that the church holds? Why would I say the church has been critically important to my life from the time I was a child up until this very day? What is it about the church that, that would cause me to evaluate it and come to the conclusion that it holds great value to me? Well, I want to consider the first time that Jesus, and for that matter, the first time anybody ever used the word church to speak of a body of believers that were followers of Jesus Christ. The first time the word church appears to speak of a gathering of Jesus' followers that were bound together with a, with a purpose that was being outlined to them by the one who called them to become an assembly of people around him. And, of course, that place is Matthew 16. It's the first time we read the word church in our Bibles. It's the first time that Jesus, in, in the recorded scripture, the first time Jesus used the word church in his teaching to his disciples. Now, he may have used it many times before, because in Matthew 16, Jesus is near the end of his ministry. He's not far off from leaving Galilee and going down to Jerusalem to be crucified. And so he may have used the term many times in teaching his disciples, but we don't know that. This is the first time in the recorded ministry of Jesus where he gathered his, uh, his band of followers around him and he used the word church in talking to them. And so the, the bluff of the morning message is Jesus' church has value. In your life. And the substance of the message is why does the church have value? What does the church, what is unique about the church that makes it valuable to us? Now, as I said, Jesus has come to the end of his ministry on earth or near the end. He's getting ready to transition to the south to go down to uh, Jerusalem. But before he does, he makes another sweep up through the northern regions of Galilee. And this is the only time in his travels that the Gospels record that Jesus Christ went to this location. He has gone to the area 30 miles north of the city that he had spent the most of his time ministering in as he went to a city called Caesarea Philippi. And there Jesus Christ took his disciples 30 miles north to the very northern reaches of the land of Israel. Now, here's just a little, uh, little bit of uh, geography to help us envision that. Jesus Christ has been ministering in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, and his primary city was Capernaum, located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. But Israel went north all the way up to the foot of Mount Hermon. There in the far reaches of Israel was, were the two cities of Dan and Caesarea Philippi, which were located at the foot of Mount Hermon. This 
graphic will, will show us, of course, this is all north of the Sea of Galilee, and this is the, the, mountain, the, the snow-capped mountain much of the year, Mount Hermon. Uh, it was the waters that came down from this region that formed the Jordan River. And the headwaters of the Jordan River were at the foothills of Mount Hermon at Caesarea Philippi, not far from Dan. Now, here's some distances. Caesarea Philippi was 30 miles north of Capernaum. So a 30-mile walk to get up to Capernaum. And then the city of Dan was two miles over from Caesarea Philippi. In the Old Testament, when someone wanted to describe the land of Israel, they would sometimes say, from Dan to Beersheba. It would be like us describing the eastern part of the United States and talking about from Maine to Florida. From the furthest state to the north to the furthest state to the south on the eastern side of the United States, from Maine to Florida. And that's how they spoke of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. The city of Dan was the northernmost town in the, city, in the, in the country of Israel. And the, um, the city of Dan became infamous because when Solomon's son through very foolish uh, following of bad advice, split the nation. They had a civil war, so to speak, and the nation was split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Those who separated from the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom was where Jerusalem was, the temple, the worship, the focus of all the religious life of Israel, those who separated from the southern kingdom made a substitute religion. They did a lot of things that was just like they'd always done in Israel, but they set it up with some different things. One of the, probably the primary difference was they adopted new gods. They put a golden calf on a platform in Dan. And they put another one on a platform in Bethel. And the spiritual leaders of the northern kingdom said, it's too much trouble to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. So now we can gather in Dan and Bethel and we can worship our new gods, golden calves that they put on platforms there to be worshipped. And so Dan became the center of apostate Judaism. It had its foundation in the law of God from Moses, and yet they adapted it to their modern day beliefs and substituted Jehovah God by inaugurating two golden calves to receive their adoration and their worship representing apostasy from what Judaism had been. Now, if we were to go to Caesarea Philippi, here's what Caesarea Philippi, kind of a schematic of what, what was involved in Caesarea Philippi. And this is a, uh, this, they didn't have a parking lot uh, back then. So this is, a, this is a schematic of, if you were to go there today, uh, some of the ruins, some of the parts. Caesarea Philippi was a very large, very influential city in the north. But what I want you to focus on is this rock ledge. This is a plain, Mount Hermon, came down to the foothills, we got this plateau, and then this 
rock cliff face. And I want you to notice this big hole in this rock cliff face in Caesarea Philippi. You see, what was around that rock cliff face was the center of the worship of the people in Dan. Now, in Jesus' day, it was a lot more than apostate Judaism and the golden calf two miles away at Dan. But rather, this area, here's the rock face, the rock cliff, and these would have been the structures that existed. And there's that big hole that I pointed out to you in the rock right here behind this building. Now, these were, were all places of worship in Caesarea Philippi, but they were all different. They were places where people worshipped different gods. Here's some names of the building, so you'll know what was here. This building, right in front of the big hole, big cave, this building was the Temple of Augustus. That's Caesar Augustus. It was built in honor of and to aid in the worship of the political giant in Rome. And so the worship of politics, the worship of man's politics, the worship of political leaders what had an important uh, part of life in Caesarea Philippi. And then there's another building. This was a temple to Zeus. And of course, think of Greek Roman mythology. And so there was the worship not only of man's political systems, there was the worship of man-created gods that man attributed uh, worth to be worshipped. And so the temple of Zeus. And then they had the court of Pan right here right beside the big hole, the cave. And then they also had the Tomb of the Sacred Goats and the Temple of the Dancing Goats. This, with all the goats and Pan, were all a part of the worship of a god by the name of Pan. Now, Pan was the, the, the central god of this area. Not the only God, because they worship politics, they worship the Zeus, they worship other gods, but they worship Pan. This area was known as Panius, or today, often the P is replaced with a B because of the difference between Syria language and the Arabic language, and so it's called Banius, uh, with a B oftentimes today. Uh, this was named after the god... Pan. Pan was a half goat. The bottom half of him was goat, goat's legs, the cloven feet of, of goats. He had pointed ears and he often had horns as well. He was half goat and yet half man. He was the product of bestiality. He represented the most licentious, immoral, perverted worship of immorality. And this was his city. This was his town. By the way, he also was the god of fertility, nature, forests, and flute music. He played a pan flute. And oftentimes he was seen in artwork, statuary, as being this half goat, half man, with the, goat, with the horns of a goat, sometimes the pointed ears of the goat, and often with a pan flute, playing music because he was the god of the forest and You'd hear the wind blow and a tree creak and this eerie music. And, and so he was always playing the pan flute associated with the wilds of nature and the forests and, the, and, and, and all of that. Uh, 
interestingly enough, the word panic comes from the god Pan playing his pan flute, the eerie music coming out of the forest when the wind would blow. And our word panic comes from from all of that. So this is the God of this place. There are little niches. If you go there, you see these little niches carved into the this rock wall where they had the statues of Pan as they would worship Pan. It was the worship of immorality. What he was depicted of as being half man and half goat, the product of bestiality was practiced in the areas where they worship the sacred goats. This is the horrific worship of immorality, America's greatest God in our day today, the worship of immorality. And for those of you who might be interested in it, uh, Pan also is known for something else. He's also known for the character Peter Pan. Peter Pan was created from the god Pan. That's why Peter Pan has pointed ears. He's not pictured in Disney with the legs of a goat or the horns of a goat, but he's still pictured with the pan flute and the pointed ears and was derived from the god Pan and was called Peter Pan. Well, here's what it would look like if you were to go there today. If you were to go on a trip to Israel Perhaps you would go to Caesarea Philippi. I've been there twice. This is a picture I took at Caesarea Philippi. Here's the rock face. Here's the big hole. And here's the ruins of those other places. This is the worship center of the northernmost reaches of Israel. And Jesus Christ took his church to this location to make the most profound announcements Regarding the value of church in the ages to come. So this is what it would look like if you were to go there today. Hopefully you'll go there sometime and be able to see this. And uh, this hole in the wall here is called the gates of hell. That's what it was known as. The worshipers of Pan believed that Pan and the other gods went down and it was bottomless. They could not... They could not reach, they could tie something heavy onto a long, long rope and throw it back in there. The, the waters, the headwaters that were creating the, the Jordan River were coming out of this cave until back in the 1800s, an a earthquake uh, caused uh, the roof to cave in. But back then, they, they could throw things and they could never find the bottom of it. It was like it was bottomless. And because of that, they believed that this was the very entrance into and exit from hell, Hades. And all of their gods would go in the fall of the year before winter because he was the god of fertility and, and animal husbandry and the forests and the crops. And, and in the fall, their gods would go to hell, spend the winter, and in the springtime, their gods would come back up out of hell. And they would fertilize the earth and things would get born, flowers would grow, crops would grow, fertility was restored to the earth. And so these were known as the gates of hell. And so Jesus took his apostles to the gates of hell to talk to them about the word church. And 
as far as inspired scripture is concerned, the very first time recorded that the word church is referenced. But there's this other city. If you were to go two miles to the west, you would come to Tel Dan. Tel Dan, the word Tel means an archaeological dig. And so they're doing archaeological work at Dan, and it's a neat place to visit. Uh, the Bible says that the king made two calves of gold, and he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan, First Kings 12. And so you can go to Dan, and this next picture shows the very ruins of where that golden calf was placed. That golden calf was placed up on this upper platform. These stairs, is what you would walk up to, worship the golden calf on the on the. The platform, down below the platform, was they they have um, excavated and and uh, revealed the foundation of the altar. Now remember, the worship of the golden calf was a replica of Judaism, and so the size of their altar where they burnt their sacrifices was the same size as the size that God prescribed for the altar in Solomon's temple. And so what they've done, let's go back a slide again. So what they've done is they took, metal uh, workers took, and they built a frame of the dimensions, shape, and size of the brazen altar in Solomon's temple. And they set it there on top of the foundation of the altar so you could visualize where the altar was, the size and scope of it, where they burnt their sacrifices and then went up the stairs up to the platform. Now, after I took this picture, I went up to that bluff right there and I took, a, took this picture. This picture shows the platform where the golden calf was. And you can look down from the back side. You can see the metal frame of where the altar was. This was the place of all apostate Judaism. So understand, the place Jesus took the disciples to tell them how valuable the church would be was the very seat of a combination of false worship systems. The false worship of politics, the false worship of man-made gods, the false worship of immorality, and the apostate religious worship that started in truth, but then in time apostatized and became false religion. We would call it apostate Christianity today. So Jesus' church, on this next slide, Jesus' church... Versus the culture of the day. And what was the culture of the day? Here they are. The worship of man's politics, the temple to Augustus. The worship of man-made gods, the temple to Zeus. The worship of immorality, the worship of Pan and all of his sacred goats and immorality. And the worship of apostate Judaism and by application to our day, apostate Christianity. This is the seat of Everything that is false regarding cultural worship. What makes Jesus Christ's church so unique and so valuable in the face of a culture of politics, man-made religion, immorality, and apostate Christianity? 
That's where Jesus took his apostles before he went to be crucified to talk to them about the importance of church in their lives moving forward. So I have six words for you. That, that long introduction, here's the essence of why the church is valuable to us. Five, I'm sorry, six words. The first word is the word foundation. In our text back in Matthew 16, verse number 13, Jesus Christ has taken them to Caesarea Philippi. He asked them the question, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Son of Man is a phrase, it's a reference of humanity. It's used of Ezekiel some 90 times in the book of Ezekiel. speaks of humanity. But it was also used by Daniel of the Messiah who would be God come in humanity. And Daniel used it as a messianic title of the humanity of God who would be the Messiah who would regenerate Israel. And so when Jesus came and took that term for himself, that could cause some confusion to the religious leaders of Israel. Is he just saying he's a man? But they weren't using that term at, in Jesus' lifetime as a common phrase. It was used in the Old Testament. But it wasn't a common phrase about humanity. It was being used as a messianic title. And so when Jesus Christ said, I, the Son of Man, Jesus was giving the apostles a hint at what he was looking for. It'd be like the school teacher saying, now we're going we're gonna to do arithmetic today, class, and we're going to talk about arithmetic. We're going to talk about addition. And so when you think about the number two, answer this question, what is one plus one? And so Jesus Christ says, well, who do men say that I? And then he gave the answer to his own question. I'm the son of man. I'm the fulfillment of Daniel's messianic prophecies. But who do men say? That I, the Son of Man, am. Jesus was asking the, the apostles who had been out ministering for the last couple of years. And, and he wants to know what's the word on the street. Well, what do people, you've been interacting with people in all these towns and villages. We've been in and out of Jerusalem a few times for Passover. Tell me, what's the word on the street about who I am? Who do people think that I am? And once of all, some people say you're, you're Elijah, Elias or Elijah. They just, they, they think, uh, they think you're Elijah resurrected from the dead, that fiery Elijah up on the top of Mount Carmel, calling down fire from heaven and killing all the prophets of Baal. You, you remind people of Elijah. Some say, oh, no, no, no. I, I think he's, I think he's Jeremiah. Committed to truth. Would not preach what the popular preachers around him in Jerusalem were preaching, who were preaching to the king, everything's okay, everything's good, you know, you can trust Egypt, you can trust, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, everything's good, you know, nothing bad's going to happen. And Jeremiah said, oh, no, 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 guys, we're going to be killed. We're going to be destroyed by the judgment of God for our apostasy. He would not preach the popular message. He preached a straight Forward truth, even though it was difficult to listen to. He ended up being thrown in prison for that. Some said, no, 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 no. You're John the Baptist. John the Baptist. That, that, that eccentric preacher that, uh, that was willing to stand up to the politicians and say, you are an immoral man. And got his head cut off for it. But the thing about all three of those guys is... I, I, when they said that, all three of those guys were dead. 
They said, you're just a resurrected human being. As great as those three men were, the answers were insufficient. He was more than Elijah and Jeremiah and John the Baptist. And so Jesus Christ looked at the disciples, the apostles, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter stood up, spoke forth and said, thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. We know who you are. And Jesus Christ said, on that foundation, and of course there's the whole Catholic deal about Peter was a rock, and, and, and they have to twist grammar, they have to twist words, they have to twist definitions of words to make that fit in their, in their church history idea. Jesus said, you just declared I'm the Messiah, and upon that foundational stone, I will build my church. You know what the church has? It has a foundation in the person of Jesus Christ. Not an apostate gone off to this side or to that side. A church of Jesus Christ rests upon the sure foundation of the person of Jesus Christ. He's not the Muslim Jesus. He's not the Jehovah Witness Jesus. He's not the, he's not the, uh, uh, the Mormon Jesus. All of those Jesuses are human beings that are figments of their imagination or created angels or the brother of Lucifer. No. The foundation of Jesus' church is God incarnate in human flesh who will go to the cross and die for the sins of the world and be buried and rise from the grave. That Jesus is the foundation of every one of Jesus' churches. Peter nailed it. Peter nailed it. I can just see Peter now. (laughs) You guys hear that? I nailed it. And then as soon as Peter might have thought that, Jesus said, Peter, you're a nobody. The word Peter means a little stone. Peter, you're a, you're a nobody. Your name's Peter. You're a nobody. You're a little nothing. You could have never come up with that truth on your own. Flesh and blood did not come up with that truth. My father showed you that reality. And it is the foundation. Here's the second word. Posture. Verse number 18. Jesus said, I will build upon this rock. I will build. By the way, you'll notice the word build there is the word build, not start. There are those in Christianity who try to claim that Pentecost was the birthday of the church and the church started on the day of Pentecost. Jesus talked about the reality of his church uh, long before the day of Pentecost. On the Pentecost, that church is going to explode in growth. It's going to be built up. It's going to be edified. But it's not going to be started. It was long since started by Jesus Christ in his ministry. But on that day, the, he said, the gates of hell, that, that place in the center of all of their worship, that they saw as the very entrance into hell, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. What's Jesus saying? He's saying our posture is not defensive. Gates are defensive. Gates are not offensive. We are on offense. We are charging the gates of hell. Not just trying to withstand the attack of the gates of hell. We are charging the false religions of the world. 
We are advancing against the false religions of the world. We're propagating truth against the false religions of the world. And Jesus said, my church's posture is offensive. We're on offense. We're on attack. We're moving forward. We're propagating truth. We're advancing the kingdom's cause. We're going out and knocking on doors. We're giving out tracts. We're, we're t- telling people about Jesus Christ. We're sending missionaries to other countries to extend. We are on offense. We are moving forward. We are advancing. Understand the value of the church is not in a defensive posture. The value of the church is in an offensive posture. When the church is busy moving forward with the cause of Christ. Now, what does it mean? You know, to say that today, you could end up, you could end up being kicked off Google or Twitter or something. You say, we're on the attack. Oh, oh, on the attack. Well, what does that mean you're on the attack? Are you going to kill somebody? Are you going to try to destroy somebody's property? What does it mean when Jesus Christ said the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church? Our weapons are not military weapons. The Bible declares that our weapons are not the weapons that man uses to attack. We don't use weapons to destroy property and to kill people. We don't force people to embrace Jesus. We don't destroy people if they don't embrace Jesus. Our, our attack mechanism is truth. It's the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ that we give to people. That's how we attack. We don't hurt people who don't believe what we believe. We love them. And we're honest enough with them to tell them the truth. And pray that the Spirit of God uses that truth in their hearts and lives. What does it mean that the gates of hell will not prevail against our advance? It means if you're giving out tracts, witnessing, telling your testimony, trying to reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very worship of man in all of the forms of deviant worship will not stop Jesus' church from moving forward. We know that by examining and studying countries of the world where it's illegal to do what we're doing this morning. They can't meet publicly and openly. They can't advertise we're going to meet at such and such a place at such and such a time because it's illegal and they'd all be arrested and thrown into jail. But you know what? They still meet. They still meet. They meet undercover. They meet underground. They meet unbeknownst to the authorities. They, they still meet. They still witness. They still tell the truth. They still move forward. That's the way Jesus' church is and why it's so valuable. Because you can't stop Jesus' church. You can't stop it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here's a, here's a third word, the word purpose. What's the purpose of the church? Verse number 19, Jesus Christ said, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is interesting. We're not interested in things of this earth. We're interested in heaven. We're interested in unlocking heaven for people. We're interested in getting more people into heaven, not getting more people comfortable on earth. We're, we're, our focus, our, our uh, proclamation, our purpose, rather, our purpose is to be able to unlock heaven for people. 
And, and Jesus said to Peter, he was the spokesman for, uh, for the body of believers that were around Jesus. He said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you open up on earth is going to be open up in heaven. Whatever you close up on earth is going to be closed. Do you understand that whoever gets saved because of the work of the church on earth is going to be saved in heaven for all of eternity? And whoever doesn't get saved on earth because of the work of the church is not going to be saved in heaven for all of eternity. What we accomplish as God's church propagating the message of the gospel, what we accomplish on earth will be reality in heaven. And what doesn't get accomplished on earth will be reality in heaven for all of eternity. Our purpose is to reach people with the amazing truth so they can be saved. And by the way, verse number 20 Throws everyone in a loop when they read it. Then charge his disciples, don't tell anybody. I mean, what do you mean don't tell anybody? If we're all about getting people into heaven, and if the gates of hell will not be able to stop our advance, what do you mean don't tell anybody? Well, Jesus was on a time schedule, a time frame. There wasn't time to announce that. He's even, once he dies and resurrects from the grave, he's even going to tell them, don't leave. Don't go out yet. He said, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the Elmas, part of the earth, but don't do it yet. Wait. And then when the Spirit of God took over the work of Jesus Christ on earth, that church exploded in one day. 3,000 souls got saved, baptized, and joined the church that had been there. And then they began to advance. But it wasn't time for that advance yet. So Jesus said, not yet. That's coming, but not yet. Here's the fourth word. What's the message? Verse number 21, Jesus told them, I must needs go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed and raised again the third day. That's the message. The message is the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, dead, buried and risen again. That's the message that we as Jesus church hold out to the world. The message of the gospel. And then the fifth word is the cost. The cost of this church advancing with the message and impacting a world that the gates of hell won't even be able to withstand. The cost. Peter took Jesus. I can envision it in my imagination. Jesus just said to the disciples, we got to go to Jerusalem, guys. When we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, be beaten to a pulp. I'm going to be killed and buried in the ground. And then I'll be raised again the third day. And Peter grabbed him by the shoulders in my imagination. And Peter looked him eyeball to eyeball and said, This will not happen to you, Jesus. We're not going to let that happen to you, Jesus. He said in verse number 22, Be it far from thee. Be it far from thee. And inherent in that grammar, that the words that make up that phrase, be it far from thee, was the sense of consider yourself. Or some have explained it. Take pity on yourself. You're not going to pay that price. I won't let you. No one's going to do that to you. Pity yourself, Jesus. Think about yourself, Jesus. Think about what it would be like to be suffer, to suffer, be beaten to a pulp and be killed. Jesus, there's no way we're going to let that happen to you. Because you see, Peter thought like we think. The more you love a person, the less you want to see that person suffer. 
And when Jesus said, I am going to suffer like no one's ever suffered before, Peter said, don't ever say that, Jesus. I won't let that happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, you get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You know what the English word offense means, don't you? You remember? It means to trip. It's the picture of a, of a root going across a path when you're on a walk in the woods and you trip over the root. It's something that causes you to stumble. That's an offense. Said so you are trying, you are suggesting to me that the, that the cost of world redemption is not worth what it's going to cost me. The value, the, the attainment of world redemption is not worth the cost that it will cost me. Get behind me, Satan. You are trying to trip me up. You are thinking like man, not God. Because Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ saw the joy that was set before him when he was on the cross. And he, he considered the value of souls. To be worth the cost that he would be required to pay. See, the cost of the church is pretty substantial. There's a lot of cost involved in saving the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, Peter, this cost is immense. What is this cost? It's going to cost me my life. Peter, it's going to cost you guys, you disciples, it's going to cost you all something. And down through the ages to you and I, it costs us something. The work of the church costs us our time. It costs us our treasures. It costs us our energies to go out and to reach out into the community, to try to, to interact with the people and, and try to reach the world where God has put us, requires something of each of us. Jesus Christ said, if you're going to be my follower, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You've got to say no to what you want to do. You've got to say no to what's comfortable for you. You've got to say no to what your dreams are. You have to deny yourself. Then you have to take up your cross. I'm going to take up my cross. It's an emblem of death. You must die to your dreams, your aspirations, what you want. You have to take up your cross and die so that you can follow me. There's a cost involved in the work of the church, accomplishing the work that God brings to us to accomplish. And that brings us to our final word. The final word is reward. Verses 25 to 28 talks about the amazing reward. And it, and it comes down to verse number 27 saying that, uh, that God's going to reward every man according to his works. There's the, the value of what is received as a result of the price that is paid makes the cost of the price paid infinitely more valuable than what we gave up when we denied ourselves. And die to ourselves and follow Jesus Christ. The value for all of eternity is infinitely greater than the cost of what we gave up. 
Why is the church valuable? The church is valuable because we are built on the foundation of the person of Jesus Christ. Valuable because we're in the posture of advancing the kingdom purpose in the world. Valuable because our purpose is to open the doors of heaven for people to be able to have an eternity with God. The message of the church is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cost of the church is everything. But the reward is out of this world. There's nothing like the church on the face of this earth. There's nothing like what Jesus Christ established in this world. And that which Jesus Christ established, His church, is something abundantly amazing. And I love church because of its value to me personally, because of its value to my family, and because of its value to America. As little as they understand it, because of its value to America, I love church. It's worth everything. We're called upon to give to Him for its purposes.